0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's jump right into the word here. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, before we go there, I do want to just let you know that we will not be having prayer Tuesday morning. So we usually have prayer Tuesday through Friday, uh, 7 to 8. Uh, Friday is live worship, this Tuesday we're going to be taking a break, uh, and then we'll be back here Wednesday for for intercession, so Tuesday, uh, I mean Wednesday 7 to 8. So uh, if you want to jump in here, look with me at verse 22, we have been on the Christmas story, we're looking at that that story kind of as our, our template of how God operates when he invades human history. How many of you could use a fresh invasion of heaven in your life? Man, I sure could. And uh, so here's what we've been talking about, that God doesn't come in a vacuum, that there are certain things that need to happen to attract heaven. Uh, Let me throw a verse out to you. Some of you are familiar with this verse, Galatians chapter four. I want to say it's verse four, it's four or six, somewhere in there. It says, uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a lot in that little that little statement. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So He was the way that God the the, the uh, manner in which Jesus came to planet Earth was through a woman. He became a human soul, but He it was in the fullness of time. It couldn't just happen. In other words, God, Jesus didn't come in a vacuum. There were certain requirements for Jesus to come and that is always the case. Uh, when you look at that phrase, the fullness of time, uh, time from a biblical perspective is a fascinating study, one we don't have time to get into this morning except to make a few comments. So Let me tell you this. When you look at time from a biblical perspective, when God speaks of time when he's going to do something, we think as the date on a calendar or the hands on a clock, but God is thinking more The fulfillment of the purpose of the last season. What do I mean by that? That in order for us to start a new time for something to happen, there is the fulfillment of the previous time. So in the fullness of time, Christ entered the world. He was born of a woman, born under the law. But there had to be something of the previous season that was fulfilled. And so you have this idea of the fullness of time, the fulfillment, the fruition, that there was the completion of what precipitated that, and then this could happen. And that is always the case. When God is going to do something, he, there's the fulfillment of something previously. You with me? All right, I'm gonna build on that principle. Uh, the, the famous theologian, Karl Barth, I remember when I was in Bible school, a few years ago, uh, the, one of my professors talked about how Karl Barth wrote about the Trinitarian nature of the perusa. Now, what is that? That means the Trinitarian nature of his return. The perusa of Christ is the return of Christ. And he said it was a Trinitarian expression. I thought, well, that's interesting. This is how he unpacked it. When Jesus said that he's going to return, he returned first in his resurrection. They crucified him, and he said, I'm back. (laughs) He rolled away the stone. So he came in his resurrection, and then he will consummate the fullness of his return when he puts his feet on planet Earth and, and sets up the, the fullness of his kingdom when he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. That is what we tend to think of as the second coming, his return. But then he, he pointed out that Jesus continually returns through the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, he, he even dug in a little deeper than that. He said, we have faith in his first coming, his resurrection. We have hope in the finalization or the consummation of his coming. And so we th- that's why the, the, the return of Christ is the great hope of the church, not the great faith, because faith is pointed in the past, hope is pointed in the future. They're really the same substance pointed in two different directions. So we have hope in his final coming, but we are sustained by the love of his continual coming by the Spirit. Faith, hope, and love. Now that'll preach. Not this morning, but one of these days. Okay? So, here's the thing. When Jesus came, it was in the fullness of time. I would propose that always has to be the case. He doesn't come in a vacuum. It's not God arbitrarily saying, I'm going to set a date. In fact, Jesus said, no man knows the time or the hour of his return. Why? Because it's not a date on a clock. It's the fulfillment of a purpose. Because Jesus set down very firmly two, pur- two uh, requirements for his return. One was for Israel and one was for the church. For Israel, they must declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is, all of Israel will be saved, Paul said in Romans 9 and 11. There's going to be revival in Israel. Israel received Jesus as their king. And that has to happen before the finalization. The other thing is this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all ethnos, every nation, every people group. So that is the purpose of the church. So we're we're saying, Jesus, we're waiting on you to return. He looks at us and says, I'm waiting on you to get the job done so I can. There's a requirement for him to return. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every nation. And so, there is a human cooperation to attract God, to attract God's activity. There's the divine side and there's the human side. I I teach pastors this all the time when we go into other countries, this is what I preach on. I tell them this, I'm not concerned with the divine side of revival. I'm only concerned with the human side. I can't do anything about the divine side, but I can do something about the human side because I'd be a humanoid. I qualify. So I want to posture myself so I can attract heaven. And whenever God is going to work, whenever God is moving, there is human cooperation that is required. God is looking for a certain heart posture. Now, last couple of weeks we've been talking about Mary and Elizabeth, and we talked about how there's this partnership between the generations. you got Mary who... Has not yet known a man. She's a young teenage virgin girl. Has never, never known a man. Never been married. And she gets a visitation from an angel that says, hey, you're going to be with child. And she doesn't assume that it's going to be through the consummation of her marriage with her fiance, Joe, the good Jewish boy. She perceives that this is something else. And she said, how did this happen? He said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And that which is within you will be of the Holy Spirit. So it was a divine conception. But there was an angel that had before that also visited Elizabeth. Elizabeth was representative of another generation. So there was the generation who has, was too young to have entered into that time in her life. And the Spirit of God pulled her in early. Okay. Then we have Elizabeth, who had to wait long beyond the normal times, and she had already gone through menopause. She'd already been struggling with the hot flashes. Zachariah, he's freezing every night because she's got it so cold in the bedroom. And okay, I'll, I'll just leave it there. But so they're they're past the time where they can have children, and she gets a visitation saying that you're going to be with child. So we have these two supernatural births. We have one that is prior to where she was thinking she would have children. The other one, long beyond. She should be a grandma by now, and now she's ready to have a kid. But there's some other players in this narrative that I want to talk about this morning. And that is, in Luke chapter 2, we have these characters. Let's look at them. i got to silence my computer here. It's talking to me. Okay. It will not let me. Okay. Look at verse 22, or 23 rather, uh, north 22. (laughs) These are new glasses, by the way. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem. This is speaking of Mary and Joseph. According to Jewish law, they would have to come and make a sacrifice and sanctify their firstborn child. And so they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so the firstborn son was sanctified, and so they would would be dedicated to the Lord and thereby sanctifying all the other children came first or came after that and so it's the idea of first fruits they would do that with harvest the first fruits they would do that's the idea of the tithe it's not just a tenth of our income but the first tenth and paul says when you sanctify the first you sanctify the rest how many of you are first born here this morning raise your hand okay now you tell your siblings that i'm the sanctified one and i sanctified the rest of you and i told the first service that i have you know, I'm going to be true to the word because I have a vested interest in not preaching that because I'm the second born, but I'm going to preach it anyway, even though I don't qualify. Uh, so. There's this this idea of first fruits. And so Jesus is going to be dedicated to the Lord. And so verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice. So they're going to, the way they're going to dis, uh, uh, dedicate him is to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now that was the lesser of the types of sacrifice. There was a more expensive sacrifice for the wealthier class, but Mary and Joseph didn't qualify for that. They, they, there was an allowance in the law that they could bring a more uh, humble offering, and so they, that's what they were doing. Verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Some of you have seen the famous painting. Uh, it It was painted about 20 years ago of Simeon, and he's holding this little baby, And his head's cocked back and there's just glory on his face and his mouth is wide open. And he's praying this prayer saying, Lord, you fulfilled what I've been waiting for. My whole life has been pointed towards this moment. I have lived my life for the consolation of Israel. I've been investing my life to see this happen. And now you made me a promise that I would not die without holding this child, without seeing it with my own eyes. And now, essentially saying, I can die a happy man. I'm ready to go because the purpose of my life has been fulfilled. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And when he prays, he says, Lord, the, the, the Greek word there is despotos. It's where we get the word despot. It means absolute ruler of my life. You have fulfilled the dream, the desire you put within there. And now I'm ready to meet you. I'm ready to leave this world because everything I've lived for has now been fulfilled. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Verse 34, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. To me, that's fascinating that Mary and Joseph, after all they'd been through, all this supernatural activity, they've got the proof of the word of the Lord. They have that little baby they're raising, and yet they were still marveling at the thing said about this child. And it kind of comforts me, to be honest, because sometimes God will give me promises and I'll have breakthrough and there's these promises and, and I'm believing for and I've seen some of the fulfillment of it and yet I can still waver. And so this prophetic guy comes and releases the word of the Lord and they marvel at the thing said about him. You got to think about this. this, this is a young Jewish virgin girl, she's engaged, an angel shows up and tells her, you will be with child, you're going to have a baby, then it happens, she is pregnant, she knows she's never been with a man, her, her fiance knows, and an, an angel comes to him in a dream and says, don't divorce her, stay with her, this is of the Holy Spirit she carries that thing to full term then gives birth to the baby i mean that's some pretty supernatural stuff and yet she was still astounded by the word of the lord over this child it's one of the ways that god sustains us in our life with the lord you give birth to something but that isn't the end now now comes Sometimes the mundane raising of that dream that God has given you, and you 're going to need the word of the Lord over that to keep you in the fight, keep you day to day nurturing that thing there's uh, tonight God willing by the way we 'll be here five o'clock tonight for the christmas eve we 're going to service we 're going to have some we 're going to uh, sing some some hymns, some Christmas songs, and have a short message and god willing i 'm going to preach on the wise men. The shepherd and the wise men came to Mary and Joseph, and it says she hid these things in her heart. The Greek has the idea that she added them to the prophetic archive she was already keeping. It it literally literally means to take and add to. She hid these things. She, She took them and she added them to that prophetic portfolio that she would have to go and reference every now and then to keep herself in the fight. So we have Simeon in a few minutes, we'll, we'll read where it talks about another person, Anna. Both of them are well along in years. It says of Anna. Now there's two ways to interpret this in the Greek. Some translations translate it one way and the other, some the other way. Suffice it to say, this lady been praying a long time. It says she was married for seven years. Her husband died and then she lived in the temple worshiping and praying day and night. And it, it calls her a prophetess. So she was a she was participating in prophetic intercessory worship for at least some sixty years. Some translations said that when her husband died, it had been 85 years since he passed, and she'd been praying. That's a long time. But she was praying and fasting and worshiping the Lord and prophesying, and she was waiting on the Lord. She was she was fulfilling the requirements for Christ to enter the world. When Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, I am convinced that Anna was part of filling up the time. I'm convinced that Simeon was part of filling up the time. They were creating an environment that God could enter into. There were some things that had to happen. Time had to be fulfilled for him to enter the world. And I would propose to you that God still needs those kind of people. Not just for the, I believe before Jesus returns, there are things that have to happen. Someone cornered me on my eschatology after the first service. I believe before Jesus wraps up this thing called human history, there's some things that have to happen. He's saying, are you preacher or post-trib, pastor? Well, we're not talking about that this morning. That was a way to step around, that wasn't it? But there's some things that still have to happen. And, for him to keep on invading human history through outpourings of the spirit that we refer to as revival, there are there, there's a human responsibility. There are requirements for us to meet. We posture our heart to attract heaven. And that's what I'm concerned about. Now it says of Simeon, he's holding the baby and he said, uh, l- listen to how he words this. He said, my eyes, okay, Lord, you, have, you are not you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people. He's insinuating that he had a word from the Lord, that God had already promised him, listen, you will not die without laying your hands on the thing you've been praying for. Man, that's a good word. Some of you need that word this morning. You will not die without laying your hands on the things you've been praying for. He had a word from the Lord. Anybody ever heard the phrase, the 400 silent years? We talk about between the testaments. You had the old, the closing of the canon of the Old Testament and the opening of the canon with Matthew. So the closing of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospels. That was 400 silent years, and also this prophet begins to cry out in the wilderness, "Prepare you, wait for the Lord." It's John the Baptizer, and and I was taught for years that there were 400 silent years. anybody ever heard that? It's not true. Because Simeon had heard from the Lord. Anna was a prophetess. There were people hearing from the Lord. And in fact, it was essential that someone hear from the Lord to break things open so that the time could come to its fullness and Jesus could invade the world. Yeah. There, there, were three cl- there were three groups or streams of religious people in Jerusalem. They were all religious, okay? But there were, there were one of three categories you would fall in. There was the Sadducees, by the way, not unlike today. Three classes, three streams. There were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberal theologians. They believed that the ancient prophecies, the stories of the miracles, that was all mythology. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They were materialists. They believed what you see is what you get. And they were, they were the people that if you can't do a scientific experiment on it, it's not true. That was the Sadducees. The word Sadducee actually comes from the word Zadok. And they were, they, they were trying to co-op the, the legacy of the Zadok priesthood. Remember Zadok from David's day? And Zadok was a godly priest. He was a godly man. They were a prophetic family of priests. And they, the Zadokians, they had heard from God. They had been given a warning. Because there was a war that broke out between the first two factions. There was The Sadducees, who claimed to be the Zadokians, but they weren't. Everybody knew it. This was purely a political move. Matter of fact, Herod the Great had assassinated all the priests, all the religious rulers that weren't loyal to him, had gutted them of any uh, spiritual men and women of God, and then he installed his loyal subjects that were the, uh, the, the Sadducees. Herod was not really a Jew. He was an Edomite that had been converted. He was of the Hasmonean dynasty. And it was purely a political thing. And he put in his political priests. Then you had a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were people who believed in signs and wonders. They believed in angels and demons. They just believed it was yesterday or in the future, age to come. They just didn't believe in it for the present. Matter of fact, if you remember, Paul one time he's called before the Sanhedrin, which was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and memory said, I'm just on trial for believing in the resurrection of the dead. Paul knew what he was doing because he knew he's going to throw a grenade of controversy into that, and they started infighting. The Pharisees said, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. We believe in that. He, we're, we're with him, and they said, "No, we don't." believe. The Sadducees, cat hairs flying, and Saul just walks out. You know, it. Uh, he, he created an argument. He was wise. So you had the Pharisees. They believed in that. They just didn't believe it was happening anymore. They believed in the supernatural, but it was yesterday. Or it's gonna be in the age to come, but not now. But there was a third group, and that was the Essenes. The Essenes, anybody heard of the Essenes? The Essenes were the Zadok priesthood. They were that of that, that faithful priesthood, and they had already received a prophetic word. Now how do I know this? I'll, I'll share with you. A lot of this, had there's been discoveries in the Dead Sea Scrolls that has validated the very prophetic nature that was maintained by by the Essene community. They never lost this. There wasn't silent years. There was a young man named John the Baptizer that was raised in the wilderness with the Essenes, and they had a word that one of our own would be raised up to fulfill the word of Isaiah. Bless, There's gonna be someone that will prepare the way for the Lord. They were waiting for one of their own. When John went out in the wilderness, that's who he was being raised by. It's likely that when Joseph and Mary through a dream were warned, hightail it out of there because Herod is gonna try to kill the Christ child, they went to Egypt, See, the Essenes had a prophetic word. They were told, get out, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was a civil war that had happened. They were killing each other off. And so the, the, the faithful ones, known as the Essenes, they'd heard from God through a prophetic word. They gathered scrolls. They gathered copies of all their sacred texts, and they moved to Egypt. And you can find the Essene uh, Synagogues still in a, the remains in Egypt to this day. So when Mary and Joseph went to Egypt, that's probably where they were going. And they took these scrolls to preserve the writings. And some of them were hidden in caves. anybody ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Those are the caves that they hid them in. And so I want to say it was around the 40s, if I remember right. They, they, uh, there was some shepherds that went into a cave and found some jars with scrolls in them. And now they've found 11 different caves with scrolls hidden in them. Now see, there was talk about these Essenes. And there was writings by the Essenes. As a matter of fact, in the, I want to say, I forget, it was sometimes between here and the 40s, there was, uh, it was early on, and there was some shepherds that went to an Armenian church and said, hey, we found some scrolls, some writings of these, you know, some of these ancient writings. And up until around the late 90s, people, scholars would always tell you, no, that, those weren't real, they weren't legit, because they were too Christian in their theology. These scrolls talked about things like the Messiah being the Son of God. Some of the scroll, well, so we'll, we'll get more into that. So, but what happened is in cave 11, scroll 13, that's how they talk about it. Uh, you know, Eleven Thirteen. Matter of fact, this particular one's called the Melchizedek document. Yeah. Woohoo hoo Okay, don't get me started. So you have this in that, in that particular one there's writings about the very documents that the, there's some of those documents that the Armenian, was brought to the Armenian church. So now they know, wait a minute. Because we rejected these because they were too Christian in their theology. We didn't accept them. We, what scholars thought is, oh, somebody after the church was established, after the New Testament was written, Came and and you know, ghostwrited some stuff and said, Oh, this was predating, and they really wrote Christian theology and it was it wasn't real. Now they know it was because these scrolls predated Christian epistles. And these scrolls say things like this: that the Messiah would be the Son of God Himself, and that He would die for the sins of the world. There's one passage it, it warns the Essenes: don't take part in the nails. Crucifixion wasn't even a thing at the time. But they're prophetically perceiving what's to come. And they were warned, don't take part of the nails. And God will reject the priesthood that rejects the Messiah. And one of the ways you're gonna know, you'll know that the, the Messiah has, uh, when, when they reject the Messiah, you'll know that God has rejected the former priesthood and the sign will be the ripping of the temple veil. Isn't that amazing? So the, Suffice it to say, these are some pretty prophetic dudes, okay? They are hearing from God. They kept that thing alive. And so when, when Simeon comes along and Anna come along, they're most likely people that have been influenced by this third thing. because the, the other prophetic word they had is that when Rome takes over, you can return. And so many of the Essenes had returned to Jerusalem in preparation for the Messiah to come. And they had, there was this expectation because there was a company of people that had dialed in, were listening to the word of the Lord. God had been speaking to them and that's how they stayed in the fight. They stayed faithful. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejected it. And a matter of fact, there's some of the the, the texts after that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had altered. They're known as the Masoretic texts. And some, but if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, see, some, there's a few passages where Paul quotes an Old Testament scripture, and there's a discrepancy, and people say, yeah, see, Paul is, Paul missed it. He didn't write it down wrong. Scholars will say that. But in reality, if you check the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the Masoretic text, you find out Paul was exactly right. Somebody had changed him in the interim time. And it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For instance, like in uh, when they're talking about uh, in uh, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? The Son of Man, you visit him, you made him a little lower than the angels. It's Elohim, a little lower than God. It's talking about, there, there's verses that talk about a, just Psalm 40 a body I have prepared for you. Paul quotes that in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, some of our texts say uh, 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 something about a a purpose I have prepared for you or something like that, that's still good. But the reason they messed with that is because to say that the Messiah would, that God would have a son and he would have a body, this is too Christianized. And it undermines our arguments. And so it's it's a fascinating thing. So anyway, so here's what we have. Oh my goodness. We have a problem, that's what we have. Uh, we've got the, the, the Sadducees who didn't believe, they believed it was never true. The Pharisees who said, yeah, miracles are true in the past. And they will be when God consummates his kingdom in the future, but right now, don't expect it. And then you had this radical group called the Essenes fasting, praying, prophesying, holding the line, hearing from God, they're in the pocket. And I would propose to you, they were a necessity for Jesus to come the first time, and he still has his Essene people that need to be in the pocket for the second return of Christ. We have a responsibility to fulfill. So listen to what it says about Simeon. He says... My eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light of revelation for the Gentiles and a glory for all your people Israel. See, that was decidedly an Essene statement. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't believe that anybody but a converted Jew, you wouldn't be a Gentile anymore. You can't take part in the promises. But Simeon, who was listening to God, understood that there is... Uh, uh, there's a, 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 an extension of God's invitation to the Gentiles. Now, Simeon's an interesting guy, and a lot of scholars believe, and I agree with them, that Simeon was the son of a dude named Hillel. He was a famous rabbi. And he was, was also the grandfather. He was the father of a man named Simeon and the grandfather of a guy. Anybody ever heard of Gamaliel? Many scholars believe that's the Simeon that was the father of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel taught Paul. Gamaliel was the one who stood up, and uh, you know, he, he, was, he was a, a, a very uh, learned rabbi. I believe he's the one that stood up and said, hey, we, we're going to find ourselves uh, resisting God if we're not careful in resisting the Christ, or he might have been the son of i have to go back and do my work. But anyway, you see this lineage of these godly teachers, and it was Simeon, this man of God who's hearing from God, is in that prophetic stream. God has always had his people that hold the line on those things. And they were essential. It was out of that company of people that John the baptizer came. And they, they, they were looking for him to arrive, and he was in the wilderness saying, prepare you way for the Lord, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He introduced Jesus. Jesus most likely was raised among the Essenes in his small childhood before they headed back uh, when when the, the Lord made it clear to them they could return, Mary and Joseph. But they left to be hidden from Herod and lived with the Essene community. And so there was this company of people. So listen to what it says. Uh, And his father and mother marveled at what was said, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too, also so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He's saying, listen, this child, as this child grows, it's going to expose the hearts of men. Their response to him will expose their heart. It's always been the case. When Jesus comes on the scene, it's the, things polarize very quickly. You ever notice that? You, you first meet Jesus, you may be able to be casual, but not very long. And the greater your revelation, the more that is required of you. And in no time at all, you'll find yourself on your face worshiping, or you'll be shaking your fist, kill him, crucify him. Because the, the Bible, the, 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 the truth that is in him, who he is, he is the living embodiment of truth. You put it this way the clearer the presentation of truth, the more clear response is demanded of you. Jim Elliott, you guys know who Jim Elliott was? Uh, Elizabeth Elliott, uh, she, she, he was her first husband. He was a martyr, ended up getting killed as a missionary. You ever read his journals? There's some really good stuff in there. He was a man of unique consecration. He wrote, uh, he was the one that had the famous phrase, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If I wasn't wearing this, I would mic drop. That's a good statement. Uh, you know, of course, I'd have to fall over and that would be awkward. So another statement he had was this. He said, God, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision." Let me not be a single sign along a road, but make of me a fork that men are forced to face one way or the other. They're forced to choose one way or the other on facing Christ in me. It's a powerful statement. Make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me live in such a way that when you meet me, you've met Jesus and there's no middle ground. It's not some watered down thing where you can stand and, and be neutral, but you are forced to deal with the reality of the living Christ. That men may be forced to choose one way or the other in facing Christ and me. Jesus had that effect. If you look at the crucifixion of Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who previously in history had literally been killing each other, all of a sudden unite. The, the re- religious class in Rome, there was always this tension. Next thing you know, they're saying, We have no, no God, but or no king but Caesar. And they were, they, all of a sudden, there was this coalescing of people against Christ and coalescing of people for him. Because that's the effect that Jesus has. And if you're revelation of who Jesus really is enables you to still live at arm's length and live in a passive way, then I would propose to you, you have not had a clear enough revelation of who he is. Because when you see him for who he is, it will either cause you to cry out, crucify him, or he is king and he is God and what's the next order's Lord. And we need a greater revelation of who he is. And these Essenes were those who held the line on a revelation. They walked with God. But there were very, very lean times. The last written prophecy that was part of the canon of Scripture was Malachi. And there's a reason we call it the silent years. Because there wasn't a lot going on. But there were people who kept that thing alive the whole time. How did they do it? How do you keep the promise alive in the silent years? That's the question. God needs a people who will still hold to the word of the Lord. And what Simeon did, he said, Lord, you have done this according to your word. He had been nursing that word. Simeon and Anna were as pregnant as Mary and Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were carrying a baby just as much as the other two. They had been nursing that. It was just a longer pregnancy. So how do you nourish the word of the Lord in the silent years? How do you guard that? How do you keep your hopes up? We need to learn to do this. I had someone years ago, a young young couple that I knew, and uh, they said, Pastor Dave, I don't, how, do you, how do you keep in the fight? They said, you refer to words that God gave you 20 years ago you're still believing for. Now it's 35 years later. They said, how do you do that? They said, I've I'm ready to throw in the towel and God gave me some promises six months ago. So how do, that's a great question that they ask. How do you nurse the, 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 the word of the Lord? How do you keep hold of that thing and not abort what God is doing? You've got to keep those promises alive. We need to learn to steward our own heart, to pastor our own heart. And one of the ways is through the prophetic, through the promises, and the prophetic can be as simple as reading the Bible and God giving you a word. He, there's a verse that jumps off the page and stabs your heart and it, it, it settles in your heart and you know it's a word from the Lord. We've gotta be drawing from that on an ongoing basis. Being a Pharisee is not enough. Believing the supernatural and God's activity in human history was something of the past and something that's coming in the age to come is not enough to hold us to affect his fresh invasion in our life. We've gotta be those that nurture the word of the Lord. We've gotta keep hold of hope and joy, okay? Let me give you three, three passages, because this is really what I wanted to get to, and we're not gonna get there again, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, James chapter one, and Romans chapter five. The, there's three examples of how you build character in your life and how you hold on to the promise. And I'm gonna tell you, holding on to a promise, if you'll hold on to it, will build character in your life. James chapter one, it says, think it not strange when trials of many kind come upon you. For it's, that's essentially, saying that's normal Christian life. Have patience so that you can, after you've endured, have had patience, you can be mature. Romans 5 says, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. Same equation. Hardship, hard times, when you endure it and have patience and you gut it out, it will produce in you a maturity, a holiness, and a character. In other words, no pain, no gain. You can't grow up without going through some things. And one of the ways that God pulls us through those hard times is he gives us a promise on the front end that if we hold on to and we nurse that thing, it will actually be the motivation to go through the hard time and we'll come out the other side a different person and we'll achieve the promise. Then God can entrust us with that promise. But if we don't learn how to nurse the promise, if we don't learn how to cultivate hope in our own heart, and that's on us, we need to learn to do it for ourselves. Hey, when we first get saved, someone else is pastoring us and counseling us, and there's times we still need that, but we've got to learn to do that stuff for ourselves. How do I pasture my own heart? How do I keep my heart in the fight? I keep hold of the promise. Remember what Carl Barr said? Faith in the past, hope in the future and the sustaining love in the present? That hope in the future, having a vision of what God has promised you for the future, actually motivates you to keep on going. Do you have promises you're holding on to? Do you have a vision for the future? Hebrews chapter six says, we want you to keep hold of the hope, comma, we don't want you to become lazy, that's the NIV. Notice how he connects laziness with losing hope? You ever noticed how depressed people sleep a lot? And it's not necessarily a character thing. We say, "Oh, that guy's lazy, that woman's lazy." Laziness is not necessarily a character thing. It can be, but often it's a psychological result of being robbed of our hope. Because without hope, we have no motivation. Why get out of bed? Just another lousy day anyway. <laughs> uh. That's Eeyore thinking, okay? So we've got to cultivate hope. We've got to stir up our hope. And one of the primary ways we do that is we look, we look through the word to get promises. What has God promised me? What has God told me? What, is, what are the things that God's promised? And we stir up hope. And when we stir up hope, we, all of a sudden what's going to begin to arise is joy. Romans 5, it says this we rejoice in hope. See, when hope becomes the environment that we create in our own mind, when I begin to cultivate hope, when I begin to believe that there is, I am on a collision course with good, that now may be hard. I've learned that it's not the depth of the trial that's the killer, it's the length. The human, man, we human beings, we're real resilient. You can go through some really hard things if they're short. But it's when they keep on happening, and keep on happening. That's what really sabotages a lot of people. And in those times, what you've got to learn to do is cultivate hope in your life like Simeon did. He had a promise, and he kept praying into it. I guarantee you, Anna, after 60-odd years of intercession and fasting and living in the temple, and she's a skinny little woman that's you know, been living in the, praying and fasting and prophesying, that woman had some promises that were pulling her through because you can't, you can't endure those things. And so the secret ingredient, if I, were, if I had a whiteboard, which I don't, if I had a whiteboard, I'd write those three verses and I would show you how there's the, the equation to character and growth is hardship, when you mix it with endurance, will produce holiness, maturity, and character. Hebrews 12 says holiness. Endure hardship that you may share in his holiness. And then I would make this into an algebraic equation. And if you understood what kind of grades I got in algebra, you'd be impressed. So endurance, that, that thing you add to your hardship, put some parentheses there, the secret ingredients. What makes endurance? Hope and joy. You stir up hope, you'll begin to break into joy. And when your, your joy begins to drain, check for a leak in your hope. Because what goes first is your joy, then your hope. And so if you find yourself losing your joy, what is the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. strength. So joy is the strength to keep on fighting. And hope is the motivation to do so. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And Simeon ate from the tree of life that day. But he'd been keeping himself alive on a little diet of hope for a long time before he got to eat the fruit from the tree. And we have got to learn to cultivate hope because there has to be those people who hold to the word of the Lord in the silent years. There are seasons of our life where God will give us a promise and it seems like nothing is happening When all along, he's working behind the scenes. He's moving things. Pastor Adam said this morning, Herod, or Caesar rather, said, we're gonna tax everybody. God used taxes to bring Jesus to the world. That's a mind blower right there. Used taxes to bring Jesus. All these things, but God was maneuvering entire nations to bring things in line. But in the meantime, there had to be those people that learned, how do I pastor my heart? How do I keep hope alive? I've gotta got be in his word. I'm telling you, you have to be in the word of God for yourself. Yes. You can't rely on podcasts and sermons. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I listen to a lot of books on Audible. I read all the time. But there's nothing like the word of God because the word of God will feed you. It, when I meet someone who has fire in their eyes, and they're consistent in that, I know. That that's person's in the word. They are a person who knows the word and lives on the word. And as you stay in the word, it will awaken hope and that hope will then cause joy. You can't help but be happy when you know you're on a collision course with good. But the enemy, there's a warfare against your mind. That's why Paul said, put on the helmet of salvation, which he refers to in Thessalonians, One of the Theth- Theth- one of them. He refers to the helmet of the hope of salvation. What's going to protect your mind? Hope. Put it on like a helmet. Don't let the enemy kick your head in and cause you to be in despair. Too many Christians give up just before their breakthrough. God needs some Essenes. Those who are fasting, praying, worshiping, and they're holding to and releasing the prophetic word of the Lord. And that's what precipitated Jesus' first coming, and that's what will precipitate his second coming. And I'm inviting you to be one. Let's stand. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the faithful Essenes, Lord, who paid a price and left it all to preserve your word, that in modern history we could discover the scrolls and ignite our hearts, Lord. Father, I ask that you would brood over us and you would awaken hope within our heart, Lord. Father, I ask that you would go to war against despair in this room. Sometimes people struggle with depression this time of year. And it's often, we're, we're more cyclical than we realize. And some of you, there was hardship as a child. This, it wasn't a pleasant time of year. And you, there's kind of this depression that kind of hovers over you this time of year. I'm telling you, God wants to break that cycle. He wants to give you a new mindset. We're to be living in hope. We're to be the dispensers of hope everywhere we go. That people bump into us and say, man, they are hopeful. Hopeful. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.